Father, I thank you that we can trust you this morning. I thank you that when we, when we come to you in that way, God, you do respond. And so uh, we pray for this morning, and we also pray for this series, God, that you would do an, an, just an awesome work, God. We love you, and we thank you for this opportunity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I think about getting stuck, this whole idea of getting stuck, uh, there are two experiences, and particularly there are two vehicles that come to mind, my mind. Um, both of them are from my childhood. But let me ask you on your end, what do you think when you hear that word stuck? What gets triggered in your mind? Let me ask you a question. Can you think of a particular time in your life when you were physically stuck in the snow, in the mud? Anybody just raise your hand. A time when you were stuck. Yeah, most of us. It, it, it kind of elicits a, a certain amount of emotion, doesn't it, when you, when you get really stuck? My first memory of getting stuck is actually a very pleasant one. It goes all the way back to childhood. And my brother and I, we had... Um, Two friends that were just a couple doors down from us at the lake, and, and these friends had a vehicle a lot like this one. The one, and, and by the way, if you call the church this week and no one's here, um, this is where we'll be, uh, hanging out. But our friends had what they called an odyssey. It was a Honda odyssey. It was a lot like this. It had a roll bar. When you sat in the seat the, behind the driver's wheel of the odyssey, it was like sitting in the cockpit of a jet. I mean, this thing was awesome. And I remember there was nothing better for us four boys than going out and trying to get stuck in this vehicle. When we returned back to the yard, you could tell how much fun we had based on how much mud was on this particular vehicle. Uh, we loved it. We loved trying to get stuck. The muddier it was, the more fun we had had. My other memory of getting stuck goes back to January 1st, 1982. I was five years old at the time, and I was with my parents. I was with my older brother as well. He was in the car, and we were in this kind of a vehicle, this model here. This is an American Motors 1981 Eagle. Now, it's important, it's an important fact about this car. If you enjoy an SUV right now, you have this car to thank. This was the first vehicle that was both a passenger car and a four-wheel drive vehicle, sort of paved the way to SUVs. This car was prided on the fact that it could carry the whole family and it would not get stuck. Well, on January 1st, 1982, this cold New Year's Day when we were, and this is an important fact as well, we were heading to some extended family's house to watch the Rose Bowl because the Iowa Hawkeyes, I know two of you care about that, the Iowa Hawkeyes <laughs> were playing that day, and uh, you're my close friends, but, uh, but it was a big day, you know, and so we're going to the extended family, and they had just moved, and so we weren't exactly sure where they were at, and my dad knew that there were two different ways that you could get there, and we had this car, so we thought, let's pick the more adventurous route, or he thought that, and so we're driving along, and it's freezing cold, and I remember this particular moment, for the, I've still got it locked in my mind, I remember the moment when my mom turned around, and she um, began to pray for us, because we're going down this lonely gravel road, and things were going fine, this vehicle was doing what it should do, but all of a sudden, doo, 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 we got stuck, and I mean, we got really, really stuck. And my mom turned around, I remember sitting right back there in this vehicle, and she started to pray. She prayed, Lord, I pray that dad would get back fast and that he would get back safe and that this cold would not get inside our car. Because it was just, it was one of those days, just the wind blowing, snow blowing everywhere, right? Bad deal. I asked my dad about the, this thing this week. I said, Dad, I think we've got a picture of that. And he said, no, we don't. He said, that day was way too intense, you know? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't good. And I was thinking, what, as a father now, what was it like 
when my dad felt the car going down, he saw the long road ahead, he saw the long road behind, didn't see any houses. What was it like when he stepped out of the car and he felt the wind on his face and he started to walk, not sure which direction to even go, and he began that long, cold journey to find help? I was thinking, what were the emotions that would have gone? That would have been an intense deal. We were stranded. The temperatures were dangerous. The snow was deep. In that instance, I would imagine my dad felt things like worry, big time. He was probably very scared, I would imagine, fearful. I bet he felt helpless. I bet he felt like, oh, what was I, was I thinking? We should have gone the other way. Now, there are times, let's be honest, when it's fun to get stuck, right? I mean, there are times when you, maybe as a youth, you try to get stuck But then there are other times when you get stuck and it's a whole different animal. You're not sure how you'll get out. And when you feel that way, it elicits certain emotions in us that aren't very pleasant. In this series, we're going to be answering this question. How do you and I, how do we, uh, what do we do when we get stuck in the areas of our lives that matter the most? What do we do? How do we think? How, How do we respond when we get stuck in the areas of life that matter most? What do you do when you lose traction? And, and you know this, that when you get stuck in one area of your life, it doesn't just impact that area. It impacts all sorts of other areas in your life. What do you do in the areas of, the areas of life that matter most when you get stuck, when you lack forward progress, when you wish you could keep going, but you just can't? And Or some of you, you might feel this way. What do you do when you look at and you just see just pieces now? You just see the pieces of all that's kind of happened and kind of you're getting stuck. And you just wish you could just put them all back together, but you have this thought often. You just say, it's too complicated now. It's just, we've gone too far. It's, it would just be too messy. It's, it's, it's too much. It's, it's, we've gone too far. What, what do you do then? Well, how do you respond then? Sometimes we get stuck and also we could say this, it's not our fault. Sometimes we get stuck and it's just because of our circumstances, maybe even the circumstances that we were born into. For some of you, you're in a family situation, it's not your fault, but you're definitely stuck. You feel that way. But then there are other times when it is our fault. There are other times when we're stuck because of the person we see in the mirror. We're stuck because we made certain decisions. And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to focus on when we get stuck and it's because it's on us because it's our fault because of what we said because of what we did because of what we think and very simply we're going to focus this morning on what do we do when we get stuck because we just messed up what do you and I do when we find ourselves here it is stuck in sin stuck in our own error what do we do when we look kind of to our left and our right and we can't even see really over the rut that we're in we're that stuck it's a frustrating place to be. We're going to look at the story this morning of a person in the Old Testament that not only got stuck, but more importantly, we're going to see how he got unstuck. Because the question isn't this morning, will I ever get stuck? The question isn't this morning, will I ever get caught up in the issues in my life? The question is this, how long will I stay stuck? And what we're going to see this morning in this example in Scripture, this awesome example of Okay, when we get stuck, because it's not a matter of if, but it's really a matter of when, or right now, when I'm stuck, where do I go? Where do I turn? How do I respond? What's my, what's my guide to what I should do? Going back to this little childhood memory, this, this picture here, 
you know, I appreciate the picture for two reasons. One, I think it's just kind of funny because it's the car, it's there, and it's, it's a funny memory now. But I also like this picture, particularly for this morning, because of the size of the vehicle that it took to get us out. Uh, it wasn't a tractor. <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, uh, uncle's big truck. This thing was a front-end loader is what it took to get this car out of there. Now, this morning, this is why uh, that stands out to me. We're going to see today this from Scripture. We're going to see that when you and I get stuck, it's not so much about the size of the issue we're in, but we're going to see that our focus is going to be able to be turned towards the size of our Heavenly Father. We're going to be able to see this morning that, that He loves each and every one of us enough that he would say, okay, I, I recognize that you're stuck, but we're going to focus today on how big is our God and what does that mean for us? And this, how does God respond when we begin a conversation, when we say, you know what, I am stuck, when we admit it, when we come forward on that? We're going to acknowledge uh, just two things right off the top, two facts. Here's the, the first one. Here it is. Number one, everybody gets stuck in sin. Everyone. Nobody's absent. It could be from the youngest person in the room here this morning to the very oldest person in the room. Everybody gets stuck in sin. Sin is uh, when we do wrong. A sin gets committed when I do wrong and I commit an offense against a God who is holy, our God who is just, our God who is loving. Sin is ugly, isn't it? Sin is offensive. It's distracting. Many of you know this, sin is very isolating, right? You, you, when you're stuck in sin, you don't really want to share. It's like it pulls you away. Sin breaks relationships. Sin leaves scars oftentimes that don't heal. You may have experienced that. It's heartbreaking. It's frustrating. The effects of sin not only affect the person sinning, but they affect the people who are being sinned against, and they are horrible. Sin can show up in the context of a relationship, a job, a marriage, a friendship, you name it, in a person's personal life. Oftentimes, sin gets highlighted because there's a series of things that we might do that they seem insignificant, and so we keep doing them, but then we look back two months, four months, six months, a year, and we see this pattern, and then we just go, whoa, now we've got, we've got this big problem. We didn't see that when this, the insignificant things, we thought, oh, that's just not, not a big deal, not a big deal, but then it all added up. We all get stuck in sin. It comes from things, in, it comes in the form of pride, it can come in the form of greed, lust, gossip, anger, selfishness, discontentment. The Apostle Paul, he made a, a very telling statement in Romans chapter 3. He said, over, over all of humanity, he just gave this unarguable condition. He said this. He said, for all people have sinned and they've fallen short of the glory of God. What Paul was saying is this, everyone. He said, nobody gets left out. From the youngest to the oldest, we mess up. We sin. You know, when I prepare to teach, oftentimes God really nails me on the topic that I'm teaching. And so this week I thought, oh, I'm teaching on stuck in sin. This will be a fun week, right? God showed me a few things in my own life. We all get stuck in sin, don't we? The second fact that is this that we're going to lay out this morning, and this one's a little bit harder to swallow. Here it is. Not everybody gets unstuck. Not everybody gets unstuck. Some people, they stay stuck. Some people never open the car door and take the long hike to get help. Some people never begin the conversation that leads them to a place of restoration. They never do that. I don't know of many things that are harder to watch, honestly, as a pastor than when you're maybe meeting with someone and you see that they're stuck. I mean, they're stuck in sin. 
and you, you talk to them, and they, they know how to get unstuck, but for whatever reason, maybe it's pride or it's fear of consequence, well, whatever it is, they choose to stay stuck. So hard to watch. And the reason why it's so hard to watch, and many of you know this, is because when you've experienced the joy and when you've experienced the love of God, the radical love of Jesus Christ, you know that, oh, please don't stay stuck. No, there's something. God has a grander vision for your life. Don't stay stuck. The solution is so oftentimes more close than it seems. The undeniable hope is this. We can all be unstuck. We can get out. We're going to see crystal clear this morning that while we mess up, we can also be restored. James, the brother of Jesus, and he was a guy, he was a normal guy like you and I. He messed up at times. And so he understood this whole thing, and this is how he put it. He said, confess, or he said, or admit your sins, in order that, he said, that you might be healed. He said, get them out in the open. He said, that's okay. He said, when you do that, whoa, then you're on the right path, in order that you might be healed. The path to being forgiven by God, by others, to getting a fresh start, to getting a do-over, the path to restoration, we're going to see it this morning, it begins with a conversation. This is our bottom line for this morning, if you're taking notes, here it is. Restoration is a conversation away. Restoration is a conversation away. When sin is present and things are broken, there's nothing better than this word right here, being restored. There's nothing better than restoration. And you know that. There have been many of you, you've gone through a period of time maybe where you said, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to deal with this. Instead of like packing this and carrying this luggage around anymore, I'm just going to deal with it. And you know the freedom that comes when you do that. You know the freedom, you know the joy that comes when you say, you know what, I'm not, not going to pack this away anymore. We're going to begin this morning by looking at the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We're going to look at at uh, chapters 11 and 12. And in this passage, we're going to see the story unfold of a man named David who got stuck in sin. And we're going to see his actions leading up to the sin. We're going to see the sin itself. We're going to see then the messy, after, the, the messy aftermath. And then we're going to see on the positive side, okay, how did David respond in the end? How did David get unstuck? And we're going to land in Psalm 51 for that. So let's get started. Look at me at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says, in, <clears throat> in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out to the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and they beat, besieged Re, uh, Rabbah. But David, it says, remained in Jerusalem. Now, when you read that alone, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal that David remained in Jerusalem. But if you read the whole context and you know kind of where the story goes, there's some significance behind what David is doing here, the fact that he didn't go out and join the troops and go off to war. As sin does, what does it do? It takes us away from where we should be. King David was no different at all. Verse 2, one evening, he didn't go off to war, one evening David got up from his bed and he walked around the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and, she slept, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived, and she sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. You know that guilty feeling? <laughs> that heavy feeling when you just know that you're in trouble? 
It can come even in the form of a conversation. You're talking to someone and you say something that's hurtful and you can just tell by the look, the dejected look on their face like, oh, I messed up. I shouldn't have done that. It can come in the form when you see maybe the pattern of your error and it kind of builds up and then all of a sudden you look behind you at the trail and you go, oh no, that, that weight. I can imagine in this moment David was saying something like this to himself, what was I thinking? Why didn't I just go off to where I should have been? Why the, why the top of the palace? Why did I do that? Why did I respond? But instead of waving the white flag in that instance and having the conversation and beginning that process to restoration, what we see is this. David did the natural thing. And instead of coming clean, David took this path. He took these words, cover up. He said, you know, instead of coming clean, I'm going to try to cover it up because if I just come clean, it's, whoa, it's going to be a mess. I mean, I'm, I'm the king. I can't just come clean. And after all, I mean, she's pregnant. This is no small deal. And so David devises a plan. He's the king after all. Think about the power that David had in that moment. Think about the fact that he was probably thinking, you know what? I've got enough influence. I can get through this. I can iron this thing out. Nobody has to know because of my position I can get through this. Like any person stuck in sin, however great or small, what do we do? When we're stuck, we think through our options. But instead of turning to his heavenly father and beginning that conversation, turning himself in, in a sense, and saying, I'm stuck, David, instead, he turned to himself, and he said, okay, how can I get unstuck? David landed on this plan. First, he thought this. He thought, I'll send for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And I'll kind of pretend that I need an update on the war situation. And when, when Uriah comes back and when we meet together, after we kind of get that update and have, you know, a meal maybe together, then I'm going to give Uriah some time off. I'm going to give him some time to be with his wife. So following orders, Uriah comes back from, comes back to Jerusalem, comes home. And after having this time with David, after they've met, King David sends him away, sends him home, but Uriah doesn't go home. Instead, he sleeps at the entrance to the palace, right along with all the other king's servants. Now, this particular twist in the story would have been one that David wished hadn't happened. This made it more complicated for him. And so he asks Uriah, you know, why did you do that? I mean, why didn't you go, why didn't you go home? Relax a little bit. You're home. Just take a little break. And Uriah responds this way. This is David, the ark of Israel in Judah it's out there, it's underneath a tent. And he says, and my men, my, my fellow men of arms, they're sleeping out in the open country. How, how could you expect me to come home and, and eat good food and, and drink good drink and be with my wife? No way. I, I can't do it. David was probably thinking in that moment, Uriah, why do you have to be such a good man? You know, why can't you just act a little bit like me? Just be a little bit selfish in this moment. And so what David does is he takes another attempt at it the following evening, and that too fails. And so now David goes on to plan B. Plan B is this, okay, the plot now is this, how can I get Uriah killed? And so David gives orders to have Uriah put on the front lines in the midst of the battle. And then when the battle gets really strong and really heated, the command was, okay, everybody pull back from Uriah, he'll be out there all alone, he'll be defenseless, and then he'll be killed. That's, that's the plan. Verse 16, here it is, plan B. So while Joab 
had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew that the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and they fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after a time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let me just say this. If, if you're new to the Bible or you're new to church, and I, I respect you for being here. You're on, you're on the right journey. It's respectable. You're going to find, though, and I just love this about the text, you're going to find that the Bible's a real book. You're going to find that the stories in it aren't like these little white lies and then the fairy tale ending. When you read the Bible, you're going to find, and, and I appreciate this, it's a real thing. Um, the, the, the examples that we see in it, we go, oh, wow. Um, David responds this way. Everything's kind of happened now. David's got Uriah killed. And chapter 12 begins with this statement. It says that the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan was a prophet, and so Nathan comes uh, to David, and Nathan tells David a story. He tells him a story, you know, Nathan from God speaking a message to David. Nathan tells him a story about someone who has acted very unjustly. He tells him a story about someone who's clearly stuck in sin. They haven't done what's right. They're stuck in their place of sin. And this story elicits a response from David as he hears the story of this injustice that's been committed. Here's David's response. Verse 5, chapter 12, it says that David burned with anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. And what, David's going, this isn't right. He, this guy's acted unjustly. Anybody that acts unjustly like this should be put to death. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. And you can imagine David went, oh, uh-oh. He says that, he said, Nathan speaking to David from the Lord, I anointed you as king over Israel, David, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had, not, had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Now, like anyone who comes face to face with their error, David is at a clear fork in the road. David has a decision to make. Okay, wow. Nathan, you're reading my mail from the Lord. I can either continue to cover up or I can come clean. I can cover up or I can begin the conversation that will lead me to a place where I'll be restored. Verse 13, these are critical words. It says, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Restoration, what does it do? It begins with a conversation. It begins, David, by saying, speaks. He says, I've sinned. I've done wrong. David realizes in that moment that it would be better to confess than continue to hide. Now, we know, though, from the details in the story, you read the whole thing, and you know that it took David at least nine months. David lived with the weight of this sin. David lived stuck for at least nine months before he began this process to being restored. And if you've been stuck before, like I know I have, when you're stuck, it's heavy, isn't it? 
You carry it and you go, oh, oh, this is just, it's distracting. David described what it's like to live stuck. He did this in Psalm 32. Let me read this to you, verse verse 3. David said, when I kept silent, when I didn't speak, when I didn't confess, he said, my bones wasted away. It was like sheer agony through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Remember, David, this whole act was committed. David woke up the next morning. He was thinking about it still. David went to bed that night. He probably thought about it. He woke up the next morning, week after week after week, month after month after month. Think about how heavy, how oppressive it was. The reason the why this is important, the reason why it was so oppressive to David, the reason why he said this is, it caused me, me to be in agony, is because just like you and me, David was not created to bear that kind of weight. He wasn't meant to live that way. He wasn't created to. This is why if you've ever come clean, regardless of how much pain or just how how many pieces you had to pick up, you know that when you you do get unstuck, there's a sense of, whew, I can deal with whatever now. At least the the weight, the weight is off. Verse 5, he says this. He says, I acknowledged, then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. I'll confess my sin, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Restoration, what did it do? It began with David, with with a conversation. Now verse, now chapter, uh, verse 1 of Psalm 51. These are the words then that David spoke after he was confronted by Nathan. After David said to Nathan, okay, 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 white flag now, I will confess to the Lord. Not if, but when we get stuck in sin. This, what we're about to read, this is good news. This is a guide. Okay, how do I get out? Whether it's a sin of pride or greed or anger, you just fly off the handle. Whether it's a a lack of trust, you struggle with that. This is a remedy playbook right here. Verse 1, Psalm 51 David said, have, look, at, look right where he looks right first. Have mercy on me, he says, oh God. Again, we don't focus so much about the car stuck. What's the size? Who's the one that gets us out? Have mercy on me, oh God. David's saying, well, okay, I got to put this in perspective right away. He says, according to who are you, God? According to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash away all my iniquities. Cleanse me from my sin. Know this about David. His sin bothered him. He wasn't just going to say, I'm just going to keep going and keep going. No, he got to a point where he said, my sin bothers me, and it bothers me enough to get it out. David understands that sin destroys everything good. You understand this. You understand that your sin not only destroys you, but it destroys everyone around you. And we might think sometimes, well, it's not that big a deal. It was just the kids or whatever. But when we have that kind of pattern in our lives where we just kind of, it's no big deal. No big deal. Just cover that up. Both that too. All of a sudden, we look behind us, and that leaves a trail. It's a destructive trail. Verse 3, David says this, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. And then he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David's saying, God, you are God. You are holy. You are just. You are in your place, and I am not in that place, and I shouldn't be. And then verse 7, he says, cleanse me. 
Cleanse me with hyssop that I might be clean. Wash me. It's this idea of, God, you can take this away from me. I know you can. Have mercy on me. Oh, God, he says. Cleanse me like hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. The prophet Isaiah put it like this. It says that though your sins are like scarlet, like they're like this bright, brilliant red, though your sins are like that, they're very evident. Isaiah said they'll be as white as snow in Christ. They'll be taken care of. You can be, it can be washed away. And then verse 10, David writes, and this is, this is his plea for restoration. Uh, this might even become a model prayer. You might walk away with these verses today and you might just pray these. David writes this. He says, create in me, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And then he says, and grant me a, a, a willing spirit that will sustain me. I was meeting with a guy this week, and we were just talking about his life and his past, and he said, you know what? He said, I was stuck in a very private sin for over 30 years. And he told me, he said, and it impacted my family this way, my wife this way, all, my kids eventually this way. And he said, it caused me to be very isolated. He said, I was, just, I was a different person. And then he told me about, he said, then I, then I kind of manned up. And he said, I, I confessed. I began the conversation, the conversation that led to restoration. He said, I, I had it. And we, you know, we started to work through that. So he told me about this. And, and then we, we prayed together. We're done meetings, so we prayed together. And I look up from our prayer, and, and he's wiping these tears away from his face. And I just thought to myself after he left, I thought, that guy was crying tears of joy. And here's why. It's because he's been restored. It's because he's been forgiven. And so, so he doesn't cry tears of, oh, pain anymore. He cries tears of absolute joy. He looks over those 30 years and he goes, man, I lived stuck. But then what did I do? I confessed. I came clean. I stepped out. I said, okay, I'm going to have the conversation. And he's saying now, he's just crying. He's saying, wow, God's restored me. Tears of joy. David is asking God, restore to me the joy. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me the joy, God, when I walk forgiven. That is a joyful place to be, even if you got to pick up the pieces. To be forgiven. To get right with the one above. Everybody gets stuck, but not everyone gets unstuck. And then verse 16. David puts like a he puts a fine point on it. Like, if you, if you don't understand restoration, David says, okay, I just want to sum it up. Here, here's specifically, here's how it happens. Verse 16, he says this, talking about God, he says, you do not delight in the sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Then he says, my sacrifice, oh God, is this a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Know this, when you approach God, I used to get this so messed up. When you approach God, he doesn't look for you to be all cleaned up. I used to think that in order to get right with God, you had to like get yourself right. You had to be, get, get it together, get your game right. And uh, it's not that way. What's God looking for? Here it is. My sacrifice, so God is here. It is. It's a broken spirit. It means this. It means that you come and you say, I don't have it all together. 
that's a broken spirit. It's saying, I'm lost without you, God. Remember how he started the psalm, have mercy on me, oh God. David's in this place where he's saying, you know what, God, I need your mercy. I'm broken. God would say to us this morning, you come to me with a broken spirit. That's, that's how you come to me. The Apostle Paul put it like this. He said that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul said this. He lived with this mindset. He said, of whom I'm the worst. The Apostle Paul. And what Paul was saying is this. He wasn't saying like, oh, I go out and I just commit all these sins and I'm kind of proud of that. No, Paul was just saying, you know what? I just know that I still do sin. And in light of who God is, oh man, God, thank you that you came into the world to save sinners like me. The gospel The good news is this, that Christ Jesus came. You believe in his death and in his resurrection, and you can walk clean. If you're stuck, you can get unstuck. If you carry a burden, if you can't see past the rut that you're in when you're stuck, in Christ Jesus you can. He died the death that you couldn't die. Hear, Hear this, please, so that you could live the life that he created you to live, that he wants you to live. David saw his sin. But the important thing, the, really the takeaway for this morning is this. David didn't just see his sin, but he had a response. And he didn't just see his sin and, and kind of compare it to other people and say, oh, well, I don't have to feel too bad. I mean, after all, he killed two people and I killed just one. You know, he didn't, he didn't do that. He didn't do the compare game. Instead, he saw his sin not in light of who he was or who other people were, but he saw his sin in light of who God was and in light of how big God is David knew that pleading for the mercy of God was the best thing that he could possibly do. He knew that it was better to come clean than to carry on. He knew that it was better to repent than to rebel. David knew that it would be better for him to confess than to continue on. He knew that. Proverbs chapter 23 or 28 verse 13 says this. It says whoever con- conceals their sins does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Whoever conceals, whoever continues to hide, they don't prosper. But whoever confesses, whoever gets it out in the open, who says, you know what, it's going to be a mess, I understand that, they find mercy and there's no better place to be than in the mercy of God. It's the difference between this. The top person, whoever conceals, it's as though they've said, I'm going to buy into a small vision for my life. I'm just going to get through life, and it's no big deal. My past is my past. College is college. Whatever. And they're just going to kind of move on. That's a small vision for your life. A big vision for your life says this. Okay, I'm going to acknowledge, and I'm going to find mercy. Because I know that in mercy, that's where I'll be walking in step with God. That's where I'm going to live out this amazing plan that God has for me. It's a grand vision. John Newton, who he was once a, a slave trader, he was a guy, he was far from God. He met Christ, and God just got a hold of his life. He went on to write that hymn that you would all know if we played it, Amazing Grace. But on his deathbed, he said this, very telling statement. He said, my memory is nearly gone But I remember two things. Number one, that I am a a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. John said, you know what? I I remember that I am a great sinner. Not just my days of old, but he said, I I still, I still struggle. I remember that I am a great sinner, but I also remember, boy, it's not just about being stuck. It's who's going to, I remember that my Savior is great. We said two things on the front end this morning. 
Here they are. Everybody, everyone gets stuck. And then number two, not everyone gets unstuck. But here's the truth for all of us that I hope that you won't miss. Here it is. Restoration begins with a conversation. This whole idea, restoration, this whole idea of being renewed in Christ, it begins with a simple conversation. It begins with us approaching God. You know, if you were in a conversation with God, you might start it by saying, maybe I'm just going to give you three things just to kind of close here. Maybe three ways that you could respond to him. Uh, Whether it's a conversation that you've had a hundred times or this is the very first time, you might say these two words first. I'm sorry. And you might just say, God, I'm sorry that I haven't talked to you in a while. Maybe you'd say in a long while. Maybe you'd say this, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. God, I'm sorry for the sin. I'm sorry for the the sin that I just continue in. God, I'm sorry for the sin that I think is big and the sin that maybe I just think is small, but it's kind of big. God, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. And then this, I think you, maybe the next phrase you would say to God is this, Lord, thank you. Lord, Lord, thank you that you sent Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that you sent Christ so that I can have mercy. Lord, thank you that you sent Christ so that I don't have to continue to bear the weight. I don't have to continue to be stuck. That if I confess, Lord, I can find comfort and grace in that. Lord, thank you. And then lastly, I think maybe you could say this. You just say, please. You say, I'm sorry. You say, thank you. And then you say, please, Lord, would you please lead me? God, would you please lead me? Lord, help me not to remain stuck, but Lord, help me to live in a place where I experience what you truly have for me. Lord, help me to to be the kind of person that I remember, whoa, Christ died for that. And so I don't have to bear it myself that I can get unstuck. I I can give that to God. Lord, help me. Please help me with that. This morning, I hope that you walk away from here and you are crystal clear on this, that through Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven. We're talking about a really heavy matter here today, being stuck in sin. But I hope that you'll walk away and you'll say, okay, in light of that heaviness, I know I can be forgiven. My rescuer is much bigger than my issue, much bigger. I'm going to pray for us here in a second just to kind of close this out. And, and you might even say those words in that prayer, I'm sorry, thank you, and please, and kind of fill in your own blanks. Um, and then after that, uh, we're just going to have a time, just a couple, we're going to sing a couple songs. But during that time, I know for some of you this morning, there's probably nothing better than for you maybe to take another step and maybe the Spirit of God prompts you and, and just to be prayed for this morning. Um, there's nothing really, I, I love being prayed for. If someone says, hey, I'd like to pray for you or someone says, hey, I am praying for you, I just say, thank you. Yes, I'll take it, right? And so there's going to be some men and women that I've asked just to stand up over here and, and up here. And so as soon as we start singing, you can just make your way forward. If you would just say, you know what, it's not a time of confession, all that stuff. It's just a time to say, hey, would you pray for me? And then they'll lay a hand on your shoulder and they will simply just pray a blessing on you. Um, if you would like that this morning, um, just encourage you, invite you, be obedient to the, the Spirit of God in, in your heart in that. So let me pray for us and then, um, and then we'll worship and, and, and pray together. So let's do it. Heavenly Father, I thank you um, for your word. Lord, I thank you that the path to restoration isn't some complicated thing, um, but the path to res- restoration in Christ is that we would just we would begin to talk to you. We would have the conversation. We would say, Lord, I'm guilty. I'm stuck. 
And then, God, we would say, have mercy on me, oh God, we would cling to you. And so, Lord, we say right now, we say we're sorry. God, we're sorry for our sin. God, we pray that it would bother us. God, we say thank you. We say thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that through Christ we can find hope. And then, Lord, we simply say please. Lord, would you please guide us? Would you please lead us? And Lord, now as we sing and and really as we maybe get prayed for, as the church really just does what a church should do and can do for each other, God, um, we just pray you be glorified, Lord. So as we sing now, um, we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's, uh, let's go ahead and stand again.